Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. Today I'm excited, just excited, to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. She is Jeanette Watts, and the winning book is titled My Dearest Miss Fairfax. Jeanette is a dance instructor, a writer, seamstress, actress, and a very, very poor housekeeper. Her words, not mine. She loves writing historic fiction, but when she needed to write a dance textbook, she had to go off and do that. Partway through revising her next historic fiction, she got another idea for a modern comedy and had to stop to write that. And she started on another work of historic fiction, but stray comments kept inspiring her to go off on other tangents. Well, at least these tangents keep resulting in entertaining novels. And now she's trying to write the next historic fiction as fast as she can, realizing her brain hates her and won't let her finish one idea before the next idea comes along. She's funny and talented, and I've been waiting for this conversation. So welcome to the network, Jeanette. Thank you, Pat. It's fun to be here. <laughs> Listen, congratulations on winning the Firebird Book Award. I am so okay. So I got my stickers in the mail, and I have a book next weekend. I'm going to be at the Greater Pittsburgh uh, Festival of Books, hey. and the focus is going to be on the two Pittsburgh uh, historic fiction novels. But of course, I'm bringing my award-winning, my dearest Miss Fairfax, and I have my stickers. So I get to put my stickers on top of the book covers, and if that doesn't like bring together all kinds of things at once, the yay! I won an award and. Stickers. <laughs> oh, I love stickers. I was going to ask you about these two prior historical fiction novels. My dad's family was from Pittsburgh area. And I lived in Ligonier for several years. So, um, oh my God. Yeah, I was wondering why Pittsburgh was meaningful for you. I only got to live in Pittsburgh for four years. Uh, my husband went to uh, his, did his residency there, so he moved from Madison, Wisconsin to Pittsburgh, which was our first choice. He interviewed around a lot. We went, oh, we loved Pittsburgh. Just from the moment we lays eyes on it, it was love at first sight. And uh, those years that I got, the four years that I got to be there, it just, it was a magical city. And moving away, I had already had the idea. I'm a, I, I grew up on Gone with the Wind. I mean, I'm a Yankee girl who loves Gone with the Wind. Go figure. I, I don't get it either. But watching, doing the, looking at the Pittsburgh landscape, which is cityscape, whatever you call it. So there would, I would drive past these shells that used to be heavy industry that are just along the Monongahela River. And I would drive past and it seemed like, you know, what's the story here? These, huge, empty things laying on their side that it's like, well, it must have been some kind of smokestack or something. I have no idea what I'm looking at. But the intriguing hoax of what were these? I mean, it's kind of like, I love old castles in Europe, too, but what are these industrial ghosts and shells, haunted castles? You know, it's our haunted, uh, um, our haunted factories. Right. I, I need. I wanted to know what the story is of the people who live there, and it turned into this mush with you know the gone with the wind of the North about the Industrial Revolution, and I the main characters are amalgams. So the hero is in the iron industry before the steel industry. There was iron industry. And he's sort of a distillation of several industrial iron families from Pittsburgh. The heroine is in the glass industry, which people don't remember that Pittsburgh was the center for so much glass making in the 1870s. 
And so it's like, you know, boy meets girl, it's complicated. There's the plot for you. But the setting is this wonderful, wonderful city that uh, is so romantic to me. It's like, wait a minute, romantic. It's the 1870s. It's polluted as all hell, and you can't see the, the sun at noon. And you find that romantic? Like, yeah, okay, I'm strange. <laughs> but I, I love the I love the, the Industrial Revolution, especially this, that particular. Most of us think about the Industrial Revolution and the like labor and management conflict mm-hmm. that come up in the 90s and so forth. And, and I'm from Chicago, so Haymarket. Hey, I know I, I know my labor history and stuff. There was this golden moment in the early '70s when everybody was getting along for a short uh, period of time. It's like it's, I suppose it's kind of like the '60s when everybody kind of changes attitudes and you're okay. Women really can have their own credit cards. So having this thing where a man wore his Sunday best, the days you went to pick up your paycheck at the factory as a token of respect to your employer and to the job. And the employers respected their workers. You don't, you're not trying to abuse them. You are appreciative. In fact, you wanted labor union employees. Because the labor unions were more like guilds. If you're hiring a labor union worker, you know they will be there at work on Monday, on time, and sober. And their quality of work would be good. So this moment of respect and getting along where management is respectful of labor and labor was respectful of management Obviously, it doesn't last. But I loved having this moment to write about this thing that nobody knows about that. Nobody knows that we actually got along because that's not very good history. It's not what, what, what kind of story is that? It's a beautiful story. I love that. So I got to show people living in this moment that no one talks about of tranquility, which, of course, isn't very tranquil because history is never tranquil. Mm-hmm. You know, if I, you I, haven't been there, Pittsburgh is such a wonderful city. It really is. There's always something to do and someplace to go. Yep. If friends come to town, it's like, yeah, what do you want to do? Well, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and everything's closed, you can just go up Mount Washington and walk along the the path right across the river from, from the downtown, mm-hmm. and it's magical. It is. It is. You know what I really appreciate is deep into Pittsburgh where you've got the old streets and the old houses and the roads that are steep climb and a steep drive. It's just, I don't know. That's romantic, actually. Absolutely. You know, I live in Swissdale on a cobblestone street clinging to the side of a hill. And those roads would get closed and it was icy yes. because you, if you try to turn onto your street, man, you're going to end up at the bottom of the hill in the, in the concrete embankment that separates the road from the railroad track. <laughs> So, you know, yeah, it's a challenge. Okay, so Pittsburgh was a great place to put a fort, which makes it a lousy place to put a city. Mm-hmm. So we put a city there, yep. and that city is Pittsburgh, and it's wonderful, and I adore it, but yeah, there, there you have it. Well, 
I'll meet you in Pittsburgh sometime. How's that? Absolutely. <laughs> well, if you're not busy this coming weekend, the Greater Pittsburgh Festival of Books is in the Pittsburgh Theological Seminary from 10 to 5. Uh, that would be May 6th. And it's going to be a blast. And I get to be there. And I will be in one of my bustle dresses because, because bustle dresses. Oh, wow. Should we talk about that? Should we talk about your costumes first or should we take a peek into my dearest Miss Fairfax? I don't know. (laughs) It's it's your show. What would you rather talk about? Do we follow where the thread leads and come back? Yeah. You want to? Yeah. Let's follow. Let's follow Follow that thread. thread. (laughs) So tell us about your costumes. I watched one of your videos where you took apart a thrift store dress and turned it into a real period piece. And I just sat there. I found myself like my mouth was open. I had to check myself thinking, just so (laughs) fascinated by your talent. Tell us, tell us. Oh, thank you. Well, so uh, for anybody who wants to see for themselves, go to History is My Playground on YouTube. It's my YouTube channel. And the very first video I did is a tour of my basement costume collection. Yes, I made them all. Yes, I've been doing this for a very long time. And no, I don't change sizes because if I have no, if I change sizes, I have to redo 30 years of making costumes. So I really do have uh, six dresses from each era. So, you know, six Regency dresses and well, I only have two dresses from 1840, but I've probably got six dresses from 1860, and I got eight, six dresses from 1890, and I have at least six dresses. I don't like ragtime stuff that much, so Titanic era. So I keep making another one because maybe I'll make, like the next one better than the one I made last time, and so I keep trying. And it goes all the way up to 1960 because I did make myself a Pan Am stewardess costume because I was doing a dance event that we were in Dayton, Ohio, at the Air Force Museum. And this is a vintage dance event where people were playing dress-up for a whole week. But I am not setting foot on an Air Force base that has a museum on it. It's the National Air Force Museum. I'm not setting foot on there in a costume of an Air Force uniform. That that, that seems sacrilegious to me. Mm -hmm. But... Pan Am stewardesses are absolutely aviation history. Yes. And even though I am really a a Victorian girl, I love the 1800s. And once you pass 1910, to me, the clothing gets less fun. Mm -hmm. So I make this 1960s suit going, "Eh, okay. I was amazed. I felt sexy in that thing, man. That was not expected. (laughs) But I'm like, Hey, I welcome to the Air Force Museum. Here's your map. Have a good time. And I just I was the greeter at the front door in my Pan Am stewardess uniform. And if you're stewardesses then not flight attendants. And people wanted their picture with me and it was it was stupidly fun, a lot, surprisingly more fun than I expected. <laughs> and I also have a very large Renaissance Festival costume collection that you'll see in the video because I've been I've done the Renaissance Festival since I found them in high school and Sometimes I'm I, I'm on cast and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm traveling to get to them. Sometimes don't have any time for it. But uh, there's always another. I have three pieces of silk from various fabric stores in New York City or Massachusetts from various trips, probably all on clearance. <clears throat> 
that need to be turned into new gowns, and they're just waiting their turn. The sewing room is, I think I also did a tour of the sewing room. It's, it's probably worse than the costume closet, but. Yeah. So did you always sew? Well, I grew up sewing. My mother was a seamstress. She loved to sew. I had, you know, from the time, there are pictures of me at six months old wearing little outfits that she made. When I was four years old, my godmother, who's my mother's cousin, sent me for my birthday, my learn to sew book. So it was a little kitty, simple sewing project that were like felt projects, like uh-huh. blue puppets and things. I still have the first thing I ever sewed. It's a pin cushion. It's two teardrop-shaped pieces of felt with stitched together. And you can see where my mother took the first four stitches showing me how to do it. Aww. And then little Jeanette took over and the stitches are everywhere. And they get, then you see where mom said, bring it in, try it again. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I got this. And I got it for a while. And then I went crazy again. Mom's like, bring it back in. So, and then it's like the nose. She, my mom, no doubt, did the satin stitches on for the nose and eyes. Mm-hmm. And I used that thing until just a few years ago. I had to retire. One of my can-can dancers, who was, we were having sewing parties for my can-can dance troupe, uh, she named it Poke. So his name is Poke the Pincushion. <laughs> and now because the the felt is now worn through and the stuffing is leaking out the top, he's retired to a shelf. Mm-hmm. I have bookshelves filled with costume reference books. Oh. And and so Poke lives on the shelf oh. with all the costume reference books. So people who I mean, anytime I will geek out on costumes anytime. So anybody, any listener who wants to has a question, just contact me and I will geek out on on costumes, especially if it's costumes for dancing. This is serious business here, man. Oh. Gotta take these things seriously. And I will just flip open the reference books and take pictures and say, okay, so you had that thrift store dress. All right, would you slit here and do this and pull up here? Then it would look like that one. It's always good to have documentation. Oh. You can't just say, "Well, I, I thought I'd make something." It looks like a. It looks like a, rena, a Renaissance dress. It looks like a Regency dress, right? Always nice to check the pictures, and when you and you can find some pictures saying you, you, you your instinct is no, that's not right. Mm-hmm. You look at the fashion place and go, "Oh, okay then." You run with that because. Here's your documentation that somebody did that in 1804. Mm-hmm. Go for it, girl. Yes, and remember, the Stitch Ripper is your friend. The Stitch Ripper is your friend. <laughs> Be one with the Stitch Ripper. That is probably what I'm. I'm, I'm not going to have a tombstone. I'll be cremated <laughs> and turned into like fertilizer for tomato plants. But somebody will have a memorial brick in something that's significant to me, and that's what it's going to say. Jeanette Watts, the Stitch Ripper is your friend. Be one with the Stitch Ripper. You know, people, I, I, I actually came up with that expression, I think, because I had some idea. You cannot dance with me and not end up sewing because sewing means costumes. I mean, dancing means costumes. Costumes mean sewing. So everybody, I used to have sewing parties. It's Wednesday night. 6.30, the spaghetti's on the stove. We're going to eat and then bring your sewing project and then we repair to the sewing room and what do you need help with? Well, some people have such a horror of making mistakes. And it's like, oh, my God, I made a mistake. I got to burn it, throw it away, chuck it out the window. It's like, you know, how many things in life do you have a do-over button? Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
Stitchers are amazing. I mean, now we have computer. I mean, I grew up typing where you had to do it on a typewriter, and it's like you made a mistake, you have to rip it out and get a new piece of paper and start over. Now we have, you know, you can just undo and you can delete things and undo them. But that's a new thing. And I grew up where you didn't have that beauty of being able to undo things so easily. But the stitch rippers, the first thing I ever met, said, it doesn't matter how, I mean, I was, oh boy, <laughs> step through eighth grade, sewing a little summer outfit with a top and a pair of shorts. And my mother's letting me stay up late to work on this pair of shorts. And I kept, I'm getting more tired. I'm making this, the fabric, you couldn't tell the right side, the, the front, the wrong side and the right side of the fabric. So with this pair of shorts, I made two left legs. <laughs> But all you have to do is take the strip tripper, pull it apart, flip it over, sew it the right way. There you go. Yep. yep. And I still remember, you know, having this, the magic of this is not catastrophic. Just pull it apart, do it again. Oh. Keep going. So to me, the stitch tripper is magic. It is magic. I so appreciate this conversation because when my mom was an excellent seamstress as well. And I must have, uh, the, the gene might have passed me at least for a while. In a seventh grade home ec class, one of the projects where we had to make an apron. And I was so poor at it, I actually had to go in early. I, I needed like remedial help to make this apron. <laughs> I was there at 730 every morning just trying, you know, and then you put your foot on the pedal and it would take off and I couldn't, uh, couldn't get the speed right. So my whole life, I really wanted to be able to sew. And it wasn't until maybe 10 years ago, I, I got up the nerve and bought a Bernina sewing machine. I thought, darn, darn it, I am going to learn. And you know what? I I can make pants and I could make a top. And the Stitch Ripper was my friend. And so when I saw that you said that, uh, maybe it was on Twitter or social media somewhere, I saw the Stitch Ripper is your friend. I'm like, yes, I learned that. And I overcame my uh, mental block and, and can sew. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? You know, the thing with sewing that I adore is, uh, and of course I had to share this with every, all of my dance students and all that, you have so much control over the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, you can take any fabric you find anywhere in a thrift store or in the online or in an actual fabric store where you could still find real fabric stores and you wanted curtains in purple, well, there you go. <laughs> you know, you can look in a lot of catalogs and there's a lot of not good purple curtains but you just find the fabric you want. You get you you, you wanted those curtains. Here you go. You, any I would find so many of my costumes are. I was wandering through the fabric store. My favorite story. There's a mid-century daywear dress that I have that is blue and green plaid, a little bit of red in it. It's so so. It, it's my my favorite. Every Christmas, going to see Christmas lights, getting all everybody, all my friends will get dressed up and go do Christmassy things. That's the go-to dress. I was in Hancock Fabrics because there was such a thing back in those days. Mm -hmm. And I saw this fabric and was like, I really like that. I don't know what it wants to be. I don't need any more fabric in my sewing room because I have, nowhere, I have no place to put any more fabric in my sewing room. I really want that fabric. I don't know why. I left it there. I'm trying to be a moment, a moment of self-control mm -hmm. once in a while. You know, you try. I'm, and then I drove off to some event in Chicago. Now, I know I was driving to Chicago. It's funny. I remember this that clearly. Halfway across Indiana, I go, oh, I know what that fabric needs to be. It wanted to be that, that 
uh, that Victorian dress. And I had this anxious weekend. I was afraid somebody was going to buy that fabric off that clearance bin, and it wasn't going to be there so that I could turn it what it needed to be and waited. I, I, that, I got home from that trip. The next morning when the store opened, I was there, and the clearance fabric was still there, and I bought it all, and that is the go-to Victorian Christmas dress that I wear for Christmas caroling and, and to this day. You are priceless. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. The best. Thank you for such a kind word for my version of insanity. Oh, I get it. I, I, I do get it. <laughs> you know what? when you know how to sew, little things that I I have a, a housemate uh, I have a spare bedroom that I'm I'm renting out right now and it's really fun having having a, a housemate who is also understands my level of insanity and she she saw my costume base and she said, Oh my god, can I try to leave on? Well, as opposed to, oh, my God, why do you have all this? Mm-hmm. Well, she's just, just yesterday was like, hey, I'm a, I'm a bridesmaid in this thing, and I have to pick a dress. She's very short. She's maybe a head shorter than me. And so when you're trying to buy clothes and everything is so long and you try to get, you know, it's like everything's proportional, quote, proportional, right? And she's like, if I get one of these, can you hem it for me? Would that be too much trouble? And show me the dress. It's like, Sure. That'll take about 15 minutes. Yeah, 15, yeah, that's all it's going to take, really. You know, when you have the power of that power tool in the sewing room mm-hmm. and a pair of scissors, yep. you know, it's easy to do. It's, it's wonderful to have rather than, oh, everything is too long, and then I have to find somebody to have this for me. Like, no, nothing is a problem. Oh, it's too long? Snip. <laughs> Go. Yep. Got it. It's, of course, I say that. Well, I am sitting here talking to you in a pair of thrift store jeans that I love, but I but they're too long for me. And rather than cut them off and roll it, re-roll the hem, I just rolled them up so they got a little bit of a cuff because I'm too lazy to cut the jeans and hem them because jean fabric is actually kind of a pain because it's so heavy. It's so heavy. But yeah, yeah, I'm just talking about hemming while I'm sitting here in a pair of pants that I haven't cut and hemmed like I should do if only I practice what I preach. <clears throat> well, I just recently met a fabulous seamstress. So if you need her name, she wrote a book titled My Dearest Miss Fairfax. <laughs> oh, my God. What a, what a, what a coincidence, crazy coincidence. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. We need to talk about that. Let's just take a peek. Absolutely. Let's take a peek into that book. You know, they always say you're supposed to write you know, to, to your, uh, you write, write what you're told to write, write what's popular at the moment. It's like, yeah, but by the time you get done writing it, the, the, the trend is moved on to something else. So write what you love, and then you write better books. Mm-hmm. Well, I was on a Reddit group talking about my last book, which is a modern comedy called Jane Austen Lied to Me. And in the middle of talking about that, we're chatting in the Reddit, and we end up in this conversation, you know how conversation, these rabbit holes you fall down. And we're talking about Emma... And it's all, it started because I was defending Emma, the character. So many people, oh, she's so terrible. She does this and da, da, da. And I'm the one, I always have to, I, I defend Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice too, which is people like, what? Like, well, here's, here's her good points that people don't see. And it's like, yeah, I have a bizarre perspective, but there it is. So I'm defending Emma saying, yeah, you know, she's, she makes mistakes, but she's well-intentioned. Oh, but she's, She's trying to make this gal marry above her station. It's like, 
in a universe where the only economic opportunity a woman gets to improve her life is whom she marries, the fact that she's trying to set up this sweet little best friend of hers to economic advantage, and she's not thinking about herself and bettering her own life. She's trying earnestly to better her friend's life. Maybe she's an F at it, fine. But she's trying to do something that's kind of generous. And, I mean, I wish I had somebody trying to help me with my professional development when I was under 20 years old. I mean, even bad advice is better than no advice at all. So I, I appreciated Emma's in, in, uh, efforts. And, you know, that starting with that rabbit hole going this way and that way, and it ended up in this conversation about Jane Fairfax's point of view. And somebody said, well, has anybody written a book about it? And somebody said, oh, yes, let me wrote blah, blah, blah. It's actually not very good. Nobody's written about Jane Fairfax's point of view? Huh. So I pulled out my one of my Jane Austen uh, copies of Collected Jane Austen and started reading it. I went, whoa. And I went to the used bookstore and got a beat-up copy of Emma and took a pink highlighter to it and highlighted any scene that Jane Fairfax or Frank Churchill and their secret engagement shows up in. Anytime somebody's talking about Jane, she's not in the room, but they're talking about her, whatever. And like, whoa. It's like all the puzzle pieces are here. Jane Austen just cut them all apart and scattered them to the four winds. It was like, oh, my God, I have to write this. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, a year later, you've written it and proofread it and edited it and rewritten and re-edited and re-proofread and re-edited and, you know, send it out to 12 people and they send it back and send it out to 12 more people and send it back. <laughs> and next, and then, you get, then, then next thing you know, you're putting a, a thing out on Facebook saying, hey, vote on the cover art. Mm -hmm. And I've got a book. No. <laughs> Wow. Thank you for sharing the backstory as to how that came out. You know, when you're writing historical fiction, um, is it difficult to write in the sense that you have to be true to what happened, yet you have the license to fictionalize certain things? Is that is that uh, a push-pull kind of a thing or no? Well, not so much for me. I know people that they find the research part to be a bear, or and sometimes they'll hear talk about they go down the rabbit holes and, and as if that's a bad thing. And I wallow in history. That's why my, my YouTube channel is called History is My Playground. What do I do when I have half an hour to myself? I buy a thrift store dress and turn it into an 1890s dress or, you know, whichever era the dress wants, wanted to be. You know, I'm on a road trip and it's like, oh, look, there's a brown sign for the National Park Service and the car made me go to Fort Laramie National Park and wallow in, you know, history from the 1870s. I, it, it, I have no choice. So, oh no, I had to write the Weymouth Historical Society in you know, the UK and talk with people. And the next thing you know, they are uh, scanning and sending me the essentially the yellow pages of 1804. There was 1814. Sorry, 1814. It's like, oh, this is so much fun. So when I talk in the book, uh, there's you're, you're following everything that Jane Austen put in there. I follow that religiously. I like having a roadmap. 
But then there are things like, we know that she's in Weymouth. I have to fill in the blanks. Well, I know the year that Jane Austen published the book, so I know about the year that I can be writing this. But I know that it's 1816. I know I can read this Yellow Pages and know where all the millinery shops are. So when I have uh, uh, Jane Fairfax and her bestie shopping in Weymouth, and I list all of the millinery shops, and they're like, well, we had to go to this one, but then they decided that that one had better feathers and so on and so forth. It's because I'm pulling that straight out of the primary source material that the Weymouth Historical Society sent me. Mm-hmm. And that level of you know, dumb little detail that nobody knows and cares, I think it just gives you the, the, this denser, richer tapestry that... It's more fun to read for the readers, just like it's more fun for me. Adds another level to the reader experience, and then they appreciate you and know that anytime they read one of your books, they're going to be getting true sources and, and true background. That's so, in, so yeah. important. Yeah, I think I feel like the reason we love historical fiction is to get a feeling for what was it like to live then. Mm-hmm. And so much of it, it bugs this because I am such a history buff. It's the greatest way to eject me out of a book when you're reading something and, all right, it's set in 1875 and then the, it, it's in the book that the mother sent the, her daughter's friend home and called up the daughter's friend's mom and say, oh, you know, Jenny's on her way home. I just walked out the door. So I'm just sending her home right now. It's like, oh, honey, just because the telephone was invented three years ago does not mean housewives have one in their home mm-hmm. and they're calling each other to talk about anything. Right. right. So that's actually, that's what I, you know, ejecting, getting ejected out of this you know, bad historical fiction is how I ended up with this scene in Wealth and Privilege set in Pittsburgh where the hero intercepts a telegram for the heroine and he's running around the city trying to find her to deliver this telegram. Because I'm asking the question, what was it like before there were telephones? Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you what it was like before telephones. Mm-hmm. So it is, you know, I love asking those questions. It's so easy to not think about things. Mm-hmm. I wrote about it. I put a dog in the, somebody made a reference to a, a bad-tempered Pekingese. Because I'm talking about my grandmother's dog. When I was a little girl, she had this Pekingese. That was the crabbiest old lady you can imagine. And that dog and I understood each other. She would come waddling out, and I'd pet the dog. Don't touch the dog. Don't go near the dog until you're leaving. And then the dog comes waddling out, and you pet the dog goodbye. In between, don't touch the dog. Don't talk to the dog. Ignore the dog. All of my cousins didn't seem to understand those rules would get bit by the dog or barked at by the dog. And, you know, so it was... Putting this reference to a Pekingese in there is, uh, is homage to, to Cindy, my grandma's Pekingese. Well, there was no recognized breed as a Pekingese in 1875. So I had to change that, get that out of the book, because you know what? Maybe most people aren't going to know. Yeah. But I don't really want to lose all the dog lovers in the audience. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. So true. No, I want to be trusted, and... People know we all of us have our funny quirks and things that we love, and you, you so you got to do the homework. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to eject people who 
were, they were trusting you and you, you betrayed their trust. Excellent. Glad we touched on that. I think that's so important, especially for historic fiction authors. All right. Well, we're going to begin to wrap up here. I want to make sure that everyone has contact information where they could find out more about you. You gave a couple hints. Your history is my playground on YouTube, but any other places where folks could reach out to you, find out more and get copies of your books. Uh, well, JeanetteWatts.com, J-E-A-N-1-N-E-T-T-E-W-A-T-T-S.com is my webpage. It needs a little work right now, but if you just go to my webpage, you can still, there's a contact me. And if you, when you're at JeanetteWatch.com, you have to go for the thing for the books, but you'll see it in the bar, tab across the top, but you can get there. I'm also available on Amazon and most I, I've, I've gone with, now I'm not going to be able to think of the name of it, uh, it's most sites for your favorite way of getting an e-book. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm on most of them. Okay. And if you, if you prefer audiobooks, Wealth and Privilege is an audiobook. And I do have a GoFundMe that uh, I am working on getting the funds to be able to turn his, uh, my, the, the sequel, which is Brains and Beauty. It's not an audiobook yet. But I need to raise the funds to make it an audiobook. Sure. So just going to JeanetteWatts.com and saying, I want to help with your audiobook project. I will happily take your donations so that we can have an audiobook <laughs> of Brains and Beauty because it needs to be a it needs to be an audiobook too, because audiobooks are fun. Yes, they are. They are. Excellent. So JeanetteWatts.com, the title of the Firebird winning book is titled My Dearest. Miss Fairfax, and we just learned so much about sewing and you. You were so fun. I just love this conversation and feel free to share any of your books with us because I would love to have another opportunity to speak with you and uh, talk about some Stitch Ripper and Poke and all the other good topics. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for having me today. 